everyone, and welcome to The Mind Behind It. My name is Huda. And I am Sile. My name is Kevin Jarbo, he, him pronouns, and I am currently an assistant professor in social and decision sciences at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. This will be my first year teaching, and I'm excited about that. I'm just finishing a three-year postdoc, also in the Department of Social and Decision Sciences at CMU. I got my PhD there as well in cognitive psychology and neuroscience. Before that, I was uh, doing research at the University of Pittsburgh, as well as the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. Did a bunch of brain imaging research at the time after graduating from the University of Pittsburgh, where I majored in biological sciences, carrying on from work for my postdoctoral fellowship into my faculty position. I'm interested in studying stereotype threat and how that impacts students' decisions to seek help or to procrastinate in academic situations. You know, after you fail a test, how likely are you to go to office hours with your professor and what sorts of other social factors might weigh on a student's decision to seek help in that kind of situation? Like, professor judge me based on my race or my gender or something like that, that might have some negative impact on the student's decision making. What was it, I guess, for your Because you've obviously, I feel like you've had experience of some Mm. level. Like, what was it that made you go, this is something I need to study more? And I mean, there has to be some, I guess, personal story related or... Telling my story has actually been a way that I've been able to move through my academic career the way that I have by being open about the sorts of experiences that I've had and letting people know that, you know, I've needed some support that I haven't always gotten throughout the years. And sometimes that support was because I, I, you know, was read as Black by many people. And there's a lot of negative stereotypes about Black men in academia, especially in the United States. So, you know, to experience things like people thinking, I'm an athlete, right, at the college. And that's the only reason why I'm there. Uh, I'm not, I, I did play some sports in high school, But I didn't get a scholarship in college for that or anything like that. I was actually on a full academic scholarship. And so, you know, one instance that's very salient in my mind that I share with people is that a time during graduate school, I was applying for a fellowship, a multimodal neuroimaging fellowship. And so, mind you, prior to graduate school, I had six years of brain imaging research. I was helping plan neurosurgeries. I was studying traumatic brain injury, like, you know, scan your favorite American football player's favorite football player, right? Like I was getting to do that kind of work and publishing papers and all these things, right? And so I should have been a shoe in to learn another kind of Mm. like technique and be supported as a graduate student with that. And so during an interview that I had with a faculty member, he asked me, you know, the kind of a canonical question from white academics to young academics of color was like, where are you from? Sort of thing. And, you know, I told him how I grew up in Southern California and then he wanted to probe a little deeper and he asked me, you know, like, where are my parents from? And, you know, another layer to this, I consider myself a third culture individual. My my mother's from the Philippines and my father's from Liberia. And I was born here in America, right? So I was raised in a society completely different from the way that they were brought in. And so my culture is kind of different and identified as a Black American and not necessarily all the time as like Filipino or African or African-American or Afro-Filipino or whatever you want to call Mm. these sorts of things. But to have that kind of like question come at me and him asking like, you know, who am I? Where am I from? 
And then he asked me, like, well, why did I come from Southern California to Pittsburgh? Because, you know, sunny L.A. and all this stuff and moving to gray and rainy Pittsburgh. And I told him I was at school on scholarship. And that's why I decided to come to, to the University of Pittsburgh. And then he was just like, he just looks me up and down, right? And, you know, it's just me and him on a couch and, and he's on his leather bound couch and all this <laughs> stuff like that. And so he's staring at me up and down while I'm like sitting in a chair and he's like, well, you're too short for basketball and you're way too small for football. So did you run track or something? And I had to tell him I was on a full academic scholarship. And so this was happening within the first five minutes of like an hour long interview. At no point in time did he ask me about my prior imaging experience right? Mm. Uh, My brain imaging experience, why I wanted to learn all these things. He didn't ask me about the six publications that I already had on my record, you know? So it's just like, why am I even aspiring to certain kinds of academic goals if that's not the way that people are judging me? That was very confusing for me. It was aggravating, but I didn't know what to do. And when I got out of the interview, I just told my advisor and he was livid. So he actually went and did something about this at the end. But, you know, I still had to endure an hour of a person who was not judging me based on what I thought I came in there to be evaluated on. Right. And yeah, that was just the the tip of the racist iceberg, I think. Yeah. (laughs) I find that if you didn't have that support, what would have happened as well? Right. Like if you think about how lucky you have been to have support, there are people out there that don't even have that. It was interesting because he shared with me across the course of being my advisor throughout grad school, he would pull me over in meetings or he pulled me over in one particular meeting and was like, hey, man, like I kind of knew that these things happened and I kind of expected some bad shit to happen to you, but I didn't realize the extent and Mm. the insidiousness of these things and the degree to which I'll be like experiencing that. And so, you know, that kind of changed his perspective on the way that he approached, you know, mentoring me for the remainder of my graduate career, but also with other people. And I am extremely grateful, deeply grateful and thankful to have had him go to bat for me because like all the anger that I felt and the frustration that I felt, the embarrassment, the humiliation Mm -hmm. of that experience, it was able to be channeled through him to somebody who he could do something about it. Mm. Right. And in many cases, when people are victims of bias and discrimination, there's not someone Mm. at that next level of power to advocate, let alone actually take action. That was one very formative piece in my more recent history that has brought me to why I'm doing what I do. The other thing what you said that struck me was I know these things exist, but I didn't know how bad they are. I think that's what people are now realizing as well. So there are people out there that know that, you know, racism actually, yeah, it exists. You know, I do believe that we all have a stereotype in our brain because it's a shortcut because it's easier for us to do. But I guess the problem therein lies in when we actually treat someone differently, regardless of what they're telling us. And I think it's, you know, part of these contact points that we have with each other have to involve educating people about those biases. Because like you said early on, Huda, there's these like aspects of engaging with people where our brains are quick to form these judgments, these prejudicial 
judgments of other people. But those are things that our brain, from a cognitive standpoint, are really good at, right? Mm-hmm. To be able to form categories and learn associations and make associations with those categories, right? But if you're exposed to because of your environment or context or because of other interpersonal interactions you've had that have taught you certain kinds of associations with certain categories, like Black people and their level of intelligence or women and their abilities and mathematics or something, Mm -hmm. these negative stereotypes that are really pervasive, at least in U.S. society and maybe even more globally, right? Once people learn those things, it's like they kind of like sink in and then you look for that information, that confirmation bias too. And you're just like, yeah, you wait for a person of color to fail at something. You wait for a woman to mess up at something, right? And then that leads to people just having this sort of like self-fulfilling prophecy about other people and it reinforces their discriminatory beliefs about them. When we engage in that, we also behave accordingly, right? What you said earlier, which is if you hadn't have had someone stand by you and say, no, what happened is wrong and I'm going to fight for this, you would have questioned it to the point where maybe you would have changed your journey or your road. Yeah, yeah. Thinking about this conversation, I was reading up a lot of some work by uh, Dr. Ebony McGee, who works on stereotype management, right? And looks at the ways that people who experience neg- like you know being negatively stereotyped and especially in academic environments how they respond to the kind of treatment that they receive and there's you know there's a variety of responses to these things and so you know for some people they may believe that the stereotypes are true right and if they're treated in this negative way then they they mightn't have an internalized belief that oh yeah maybe i am actually not that smart right or i'm not capable or i'm incompetent in this particular domain and if they think that that's something that applies to a broader group that they identify with then that can be even worse you know that leads to a lot of helplessness and hopelessness for a lot of people and disengagement right and so if somebody believes that And it puts them into this cycle of thinking negatively about themselves that weighs on their mind as they have to perform in that domain. And then they do worse. And then they see like, oh, man, I got a bad grade because I'm dumb. And like, and then I'm going to continue to get bad grades because I'm continuing to be dumb at this. And maybe that's because of me. But not everybody responds that way. Right. There's some people who kind of experience this this sort of reactance where they want to prove the stereotype wrong. Mm -hmm. They hear these sorts of things and then they work extra hard to do it and they overcome and they're like look i'm gonna be better than everybody else in this class to defy that stereotype but either way no matter what you do it comes at a psychological cost Mm -hmm. trying to manage that because you're either have internalized these negative beliefs and it becomes like a syndrome right Mm -hmm. (laughs) or you put so much effort into disproving something that is bigger than you (laughs) right how does one person like overcome an entire stereotype to the point where the stereotype is not completely Mm. not true right and that that's a lot of work to put on any one person's shoulders and that might lead to someone actually de-identifying from that group so i'm from i'm I'm pakistani my parents are born in pakistan and like i was born in australia but you know i identify myself as a pakistani i find i often meet other brown people or other pakistanis and indians and all that sort of stuff that have been born and brought up over here and oftentimes they won't associate themselves with me because I'm a Pakistani or an Indian and they overcompensate to be more white as well. Like, and I know this sounds really odd, 
but they see what the opinions or the prejudices and stuff like that are and they they don't want to be a part of it so they go I'm different though and I'm going to yeah. prove that by almost ostracizing myself from the group is that yeah. something that you find as well in people yeah yeah there's there's definitely a fair amount of research on this as well and I mean I think you know anecdotally it what we see in some forms of media we can see people separating themselves from others all the time like uh the other night i was just watching the movie his house on netflix it's a horror movie but it's about this couple from sudan who were trying to escape out of some civil war issues and they were made their way to london right just like some outskirts living in project housing there right And they were like waiting to just like, you know, like file their appeal so they could get out there. And like a lot of the times where the husband was just like madly advocating for them to get in, he's just like, we're one of the good ones. As if the other, as if these other Sudanese people, these other refugees were not. And we might see this sort of thing happening in any kind of other, uh, like, you know, current events that Mm. are going on now. People trying to prove that they're good, that they're not a terrorist, that they're not violent, right? That they're not committing crimes. Like I said, this guy thought I was like a scholar athlete, which I definitely (laughs) was not. If you ever saw me next to another actual scholar athlete, you'd be like, okay, there's (laughs) a massive difference here. But the thing is, there would be people who are like on their academic scholarships being like, I'm not some athlete, right? Like I'm actually taking my classes, I'm doing this and I'm paying attention and I'm not getting X, Y, and Z, right? And there would be athletes who are like, I'm not like a nerd like those, <laughs> like other yeah. students, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's like, there's there's this internal back and forth that goes on. And like, this isn't just a thing that happens within, you know, Black students or anything like that. This happens across the board. Like a lot of people disassociate themselves from entire aspects of their culture and heritage and their ethnicities even to to do what honestly Mm -hmm. and it's like to assimilate into whiteness is that worth it Mm -hmm. you know to lose yourself yeah yeah um our understanding of whiteness is all about erasure so when somebody is trying to act white there that's a that's a that's a, a implicit message from the person who's making the accusation that like look you're validated yeah you're erasing your own culture for validation from what Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know from from this whiteness this colonialism right exactly and it's also it's validating their point of view on it instead of saying your prejudices are not valid you're going actually they're valid and i agree with you which is why I'm going to not associate myself with that because you're right this this does happen and i'm not that very interesting conversation. I'm generally not used to sitting back and listening, but it was really, actually, it was good to be on the other side and absorb. In this current world, I guess it's become a thing to take offense. And, you know, everyone kind of feels left out if they don't. Depending on the kind of student that you're hiring to, to be on the program, I almost think there should be a liaison because I, I think just having a person of color on the committee just helps you navigate it a lot better. And I find that even in workplaces, which you do a lot of work for, you know, for inclusion and diversity. It's it's funny, Huda's sister, we were looking at her company and it's a very small boutique kind of environmental engineering company here in Melbourne. And the whole board is white, right? It's all white people. And I found this really fascinating. Kevin, you can probably correct me on this. All the pictures were in black and white so that they don't mm. look as white. That's what I thought. I might, I might be wrong about this, but it, to me, it was like, there's a reason that these pictures are all black and white because they appear less white then. 
and it makes mm. everyone look kind of neutral. Or neutral, yeah. I was going to say ne- yeah. neutrality. We were asking her, like, if you had an issue, like, yes, you could go to any of these advisors who might be nice, but there needs to be one person who's a person of color who you can feel safe with. Because sometimes you you think about the things that you might be feeling and you would question yourself as whether they're okay for those feelings to arrive. Like, I remember when I was at Michigan in college, especially, like I was assumed to be good at some things. And if I wasn't, it was a shameful thing, mm. like especially math or like programming. Apparently, all Indians are really good at programming because of Silicon <laughs> Valley. And I hate it. I'm actually an actor now. I, I did engineering and quit engineering to be an actor because that's what I truly love. Let's be honest, like... It's only now becoming something where more people of colour are entering the industries. Yeah. Especially in academia. Now it's becoming more, you know, important. But same as your job. You've got two jobs and all the past two jobs have been completely white men. It's not (laughs) even white women as much. It's white men. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think when you already have a large group and your needs are met, right? Your psychological, social needs are all met. And then you introduce somebody new who's different. Like there was nobody there to begin with to push that thinking to be something other than it already was, right? Mm -hmm. How can you be more inclusive to a group when everyone who was already here feels welcome? But then knowing that you have to expand, there has to be changes, right? And I think that's one of these things that's going to be challenging. Uh, Sahil, to your points of like, you know, uh, having this company and like all the the CEOs and top level people are all white men, right? And as much as you try to wash that out, it, it doesn't matter. Like, I mean, gray washing white, like still looks white, right? Like, and so <laughs> I, I don't think there's, there's anything to be done there, but to have someone else be a middle person between those folks making a hiring decision for like a person of color. Well, I think that might be a useful step. Like the ultimate goal is like, well, how do we change the minds and and behaviors and procedures and protocols that those other white men are following that it ends up diversifying. But then you end up with like, okay, how is their status going to be challenged Mm -hmm. at the same time? And I'm not saying that we shouldn't be challenging that kind of status or status quo, but it is still a, a core need for people to have a position of status in a place. There has to be some sort of like balance there. And I think my preferred solution to the, the particular situation that I was in was the, something as simple as a very specific set of objective questions that all interviewees for that fellowship would be asked. Yeah, right? so like making it consistent rather than... Mm-hmm. yeah. So that like everyone was asked the same things and that it was about their actual merit for the scholarship. And this is the problem with merit now. Like this guy was probably looking for someone just like him Mm -hmm. to be able to give this fellowship to. How do you tackle merit versus diversity? And this this one really is a it's a really complicated one where, you know, how do you combine? Okay, we're looking for the best person for this job, but at the same time have inclusion and how how do you go about it because i think that's the question that a lot of people want to answer oh boy that's it's challenging because i don't i try not to to conflate the ideas as much as possible and for me diversity and the limits of how i think about it is just like having that representation as men like as like individual people within a group that are all that has as much representation as as possible or something that's targeted right for instance if you want gender parity 
you should be striving for similar numbers as your like region or nation in terms of people who identify as men, women, and non-binary, right? That should be a thing to strive for. So something that we try to do at, at, at Carnegie Mellon, or at least like certain schools and departments, they're like, they're really proud of having like, you know, effectively like 50-50 split of men and women in incoming classes. Those are things that people ought to go for. But when it comes to merit and, and diversity, like, in my head, that the merit issues can get more directly addressed by having better standards for how you're evaluating people and clear mm-hmm. objective standards, right? So if you're not saying like, is this the best person for the job? It's just like, can we find the person who does this job the best? Mm-hmm. And that's a that's mm-hmm. a different sort of framing there, right? But the people don't, we don't think about framing our questions and our interviews and our sort of processes, hiring processes in ways that say like, how are we going to get to the person who can do this job the best rather than like, who do we think is the best person for the job? Because if you have positive stereotypes mm-hmm. <laughs> about somebody who might not actually be good at that particular job, then it's not going to work. Like, Sile, if you were going to go and be recruited for an engineering job, knowing that you fucking hated it and you preferred to act, but someone's like, let's get him, let's get this guy to start writing up some software for us, right? Like, that would be <laughs> fucked up because it's totally wrong because someone thought that, you know, Indian guys are good programmers, so we should hire them, but they're not looked at as being good actors. It, this is a personal thing, which I think you could actually address because you've been through that is sometimes I'm like, I need to like, you know, harden the fuck up. My acting coach was telling me who's who's Sri Lankan himself, came to Hollywood, has now made it big after years. He's in his 40s now. And he's like, man, can I just tell you just between you and I, you'll have to work 10 times harder mm. to get to the same spot. And he's like, that's just the truth. If you accept that and then just put in the work, then you have a shot. But you have to know that. And sometimes I wonder, why the fuck do I have to work 10 times harder? Yeah. Ooh, there's there's so many things. I feel like we need to have like another <laughs> conversation about all of this stuff. Uh, but I think that, you know, anecdotally, in my experience, I've, I've heard from people who, you know, review applications for grad programs, for instance, talking to a faculty member. And, you know, he told me explicitly after someone had called him out on it that he's like, yeah, I was literally looking for people who had applications that looked like mine when I applied to grad school. He was just like, oh, I noticed when somebody worked with the same advisor as me or went to the same school or whatever, whatever. And then when he actually pulled those applications again and looked at who they actually were and he was like oh yeah they're like all white guys Mm. right and like that was like one of these things like that kind of bias that still creeps through even in this person who was like knowingly trying to change his behavior saw that on um you know after going at that second pass and then you know there's been a number of research studies that look at having the exact same application materials but white name versus a black name or a man's name versus a woman's name same credentials same everything like literally everything was the same except for the name and what people were able to glean from that right and men get called back more white people get called back more respectively compared to women and people of color right and so like those things are like real even at the level of like college and getting responses from college admissions offices there was a professor down in a school in Florida, Ted Thornhill, who had did this study, just saying, sending an email from a student with a black name versus a student with a white name, just asking for more information about the school. And they wouldn't even get back to like oh some of the students gosh. of color that responded, right? And it was like, there, and it's just like, wow, 
really like what is what is happening there is this like what did you already like meet your quota of responding to people of color that you don't need to do this anymore <laughs> or like what check, other check, check. associations right what other biases are you confirming by not responding to them yeah right and these are the kinds of things that it's like really have to work to avoid and these are the things that must be taught when you go to these like inclusivity trainings right to notice those kinds of biases and do something uh, about them right and it's like if you're not going to do anything as an individual how do you change the rules mm-hmm. so that that's not the case anymore because that's one thing that kind of nudges people in these right directions once the policy changes then all of a sudden you have people breaking rules and then that can that can matter i think when people are when bias and discrimination are actually breaking a rule and i think that's something that's been super problematic in so many things in in academia industry or wherever when i think of things like like title 9 stuff when someone is coming up and they are accusing somebody of of raping them or mm. some sexual assault right so you like, mean in law enforcement especially <laughs> mhm yeah mm-hmm. i guess that's so, the most yeah. prominent so we decide what we want to have what bias we want to fight for based on our personal experience and people you know who want to fight for diversity and inclusion but then they they might not care about something as much so sometimes it feels like we're doing it because also we want to feel like we are adding some value to the world but mm-hmm. at the same time there are injustices happening in every part of the world mm-hmm. so do you feel it's important to have inclusion or the brain only or i guess the human body and the mind only has a capacity a certain amount of capacity to care about a certain amount of things and after that it's like okay man that's enough i'm exhausted yeah i mean i think it's pretty common for i mean in my own experience just caring about a lot of things yeah uh, to be overwhelming for the last 3 years i've been organizing a racial justice summit here in the city of pittsburgh uh, together with a group of volunteers who have been doing this for decades and i've joined them recently and it's just like okay well it's a racial justice summit how do do we just think of like how can black and white people get along or you know like and then that has to expand to you know what are relationships with black people and policing in the community and incarceration and in our county uh, but also food insecurity and sustainability and environmentalism and then it's like it's a global thing like last year we did this virtually and we had you know people talking about palestine and issues that are happening there and like with real palestinian people and like communicating these messages to us and saying like hey this is a global solidarity thing or talking with indigenous american people uh, about the sorts of plights that they've been facing within their communities that don't necessarily like make it to our mainstream knowledge mm-hmm. but once you are the kind of person who starts to engage with those things it's like okay like how much is too much and there's different gauges for us all but i think you know one thing that's important is like okay can i get someone to go from like not caring to like caring a little bit right and just like at what stage and if it's linked to a part of their identity i think this is a thing that might start to become really important because when you think of identity development in general and a lot of cool theory that and and that happens there it's just like you have these beliefs these social beliefs these cultural beliefs and they inform how you act and where you go and how you take up spaces and what spaces you even occupy right and so it's just like this influence on our behavior and how we do that like ties into like our you know what we think about ourselves and how our identity develops and in this case when we want to dismantle right uh, racism white supremacist racism in particular how can it be a part of a white person's identity to care 
about people of color mm-hmm. and anything maybe that they're going through, right? And I think one thing that people, that white people have to do in their aspects of like white identity development is to say like, okay, cool. Like, how is it that my identity was constructed from all of this like white supremacist, colonial imperialism type of stuff, like to connect with that piece of history? Because I know at least in the United States, and I wouldn't be surprised if the same thing happens in Australia or anywhere else in the world where there's a bunch of white people who took land from people of color, was that like, Everything about the people of color's history was erased. Everything about the white people's history in that place is mythologized and then legitimized through other sorts of like social and political structures and economic structures that have been developed in those places, mm-hmm. right? To be like, white people are always on top. <laughs> yeah. right? And that's like what everything always boils down to. And so the thing that we're working on that, you know, I know I want to work on in my class, that I know that I work on when I do equity and inclusion work, that I know what I want to do as a human when I interact with a white person and say like, look, how much are you looking at yourself? Mm-hmm. Okay. And how much are you looking at how your identity came to be the way that it was? And how are you going to start, you know, as who has been pointing out, like, how do you start engaging in the kinds of behaviors that shift your identity development to something that grows in a positive way? Yeah. And I think you have to believe that you can even grow and change to begin with and that this whiteness is not a thing that is static and fixed and will never change. And that it's somehow the best too. Mm. <laughs> like that mm-hmm. can those things cannot all be true um, if you're going to become like a better person and a better member of our global society. We were speaking to EA about this sort of stuff. She's a social justice advocate, and and this is something that she put very eloquently. What we were kind of thinking, but couldn't put eloquently enough. A fight for justice is the same mm-hmm. fight across the board. So you know, you if you're fighting towards you know, you know, black lives and if you're fighting for people that have disabilities or whatever it might be, that at the end of the day, it's the same fight. We're not fighting for anything different. But I do think it's a problem that we have to care about something or it has to mean something to us for us to believe that it should have rights. Like, I don't personally have any close black friends as such. However, if I met someone black, I'd be like, you're just a human being just like I am. And I would have the same amount of respect as I would any any person. It's non-negotiable for me. It's like, why shouldn't it be granted to this person just as much to any other person? And I feel like oftentimes, you know, we speak to people who say, oh, you know, I believe in this because I care about this. Mm. I feel like when we detach the personal, like personal thing from it and go, oh no, like whatever. It's just a, I don't care about it enough. That's when it becomes a problem because it's like, well, how should your level of care about it be the thing that dictates the way that you morally behave almost, if that makes any sense, which I guess is hard, right? Because some, unfortunately we don't have the capacity to just care about everything because it's hard enough to care about everything. But I think it is a problem because I think that, you know, if we base our actions on what we think about it and how we feel about it, instead of what it deserves, regardless of how we feel about it, that's a problem. Yeah. I think one part that's resonating for me there is that, you know, that caring about it is the the that motivation, that impetus to action. And a lot of the work that must be done, right, is getting to these points of where we understand where there's indignity 
and injustice and an absence of liberation in our lives. Because I think it's important for us to all be able to have an ability to choose to live our lives in a way that as long as we're not harming anyone else, that we're not being judged for how we've chosen to live our lives, right? Because ultimately, like, that's that's kind of like the 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 euphoria or what not utopia. Um, euphoria, the, yeah, right. That utopia that we're like looking for, <laughs> and it, there there may be a euphoric feeling that comes with that as well, um, accepting liberation for all people, right? But I think getting people to care about those things is what can become centrally important. And sometimes thinking about and connecting with other people and say like, look, there's probably some parts of your life where you felt like you just didn't have your dignity or that someone took that away from you or was condescending about you because of who they thought you were, mm. right? And like, that feels really hard for everyone to, to, to have someone just deny any sort of like respect for them as a living being, mm-hmm. you know, let alone a human. And when we kind of like dehumanize people, it leads to this, these aspects of mistreatment. So a lot of the work that I think a lot of people have to do is it's like, all right, the easiest thing you can do is like try to actually see a human being as a human being. I think about the ways that during the last president's administration and the way that that immigrants who are crossing the border, refugees, people seeking asylum, right? A lot of these like Republican politicians, you know, refer to them as animals. And this is something I said in my dissertation defense when someone asked me, like, how do you think like decision-making and behavior is like linked together with language? And I was like, well, when we like name something, it kind of guides the way we behave Mm -hmm. towards that thing. And Mm -hmm. so if we call people animals, it justifies putting them in cages, and so these are the these are the ways that we need to start thinking about like well how can we have humanized those people so that it wasn't like look we're not caging some animal who mm. escaped from wherever their home was right like we're giving this person shelter we're giving this person refuge from violence and discrimination that they've been facing elsewhere right like these are things and those are values that you can tap into at mm. the same time right so i think there's a lot of like reframing work that people have to do. I know this is kind of like personally what what I feel like I have done in my own like work and learning, not necessarily like that I thought of other people as not people, but mm. kind of like doing but my internalized mm. sort of like self-hatred for different reasons, things that were socialized into me for being black, being a black man, especially not being, you know, uh, not being, not being like black enough, mm. even in some cases, because of my parents are from other countries, not right? Like, enough. so it's just like, yeah. So it's like, I had to like deal with all those things at the same time. So I was like, how do I unlearn all this self-hate? And mm. I had to tie it to values that were important and core to my identity that kept me held together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? mm-hmm. And so I think a lot of people, like there's some discomfort in the fact that people realize that they're actually broken apart because they don't yeah. have a sense of their identity. And so that pulling together is actually like a very painful experience, I think, psychologically and maybe even physically for people mm. to have an integrated identity that's not about assimilating your identity into something else. And I think you you pointed out something fascinating is, am I, am I black enough? And when I came to college in America, I came from India. I was called what's known as fresh off the boat, right? Mm-hmm. Which in itself is fucked up. Like to mm. call someone fop is already pretty fucked up. I didn't even know that term existed until I got there. And I realized that, you know, somehow there was this divide between Indian Americans and Indian Indians. And I find it here as well, like mm. Indian Australians or, 
you know, Pakistanis coming from Pakistan versus the Pakistanis here. Mm-hmm. And there's this divide and within our own community. And sometimes it's very tricky to, you know, we want to change the world, but there's this internal oppression is as high. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's yeah. so obvious that I'm like, holy shit, how am I going to change the outside when I have my own biases as well that I need to change before I even start going, I want to fight for their rights. I want to fight for their rights. And I'm like, hold on, uh, I got to have a look at myself and go, what are my internal biases? Because there's so many, like, I kid you not, there were so many biases of Indian people regarding African-Americans just because of what watch on TV or what they've heard. And I remember my grandfather saying this. I remember he's like, oh, you got to be, you got to be careful, right? When you go, because I was going to Detroit. They're like, oh, you got to be careful. I'm like, what the fuck does that mean? What does that mean? He's like, no, you, you got to be careful. I'm like, yeah, because of what you read in the news. He's like, yeah. And he's doing it out of a good place. But it's just sheer ignorance and, and not knowing enough. And it's like, mm-hmm. I already had that bias even before I got to the airport at Detroit. And I was like, holy shit. There, it, for the first time in my life, I'm like, there's a lot of African-American people here. Holy mm-hmm. shit, I've never seen this. And I was mm-hmm. like, automatically, I was like, oh, un- unnerved. Even though I had yeah. no reason to be. Mm. And I'm like, okay, that's fucked up, man. What are you doing? Yeah. And I mean, you know, so much of that, I think, is just being like not just not knowing who mm. these people are. Right. And and it's just like, you know, whether or not they're African-American, that's like a construct that you made up. But, you know, had something like race not existed mm-hmm. and you're like, okay, here's a bunch of people who look different from me. You might still be scared of them because they look different. But mm. You need to overcome that in some particular way. And so what if your grandfather, instead of saying, be careful, said, be knowledgeable, learn about those people before you get there. Wouldn't you want them to learn about us before they came to, to our neighborhood or yeah. whatever? Those, so like, just imagine if it's we the had language approaches, right? Yeah, it's the language. And funnily enough, my next question was going to be how, as parents, we change that at home because, you know, they always have this photo which you know, you'll have like a photo of like a black kid and a white child and they always say, you know, racism is learned, which is true. It is. Sometimes kids will look at each other and go, why do you look different to me? Or, you know, you they'll recognize that there's a difference, but they won't have a bias as such. It's more curiosity, I guess, as, as children. We're all curious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, yeah. I've had so many like... I'm just, that made me think of this funny experience. So my wife is white. And Mm. so we're like walking through the neighborhood. We live in a like really nice, diverse neighborhood. A lot of young families. This very young, like Chinese boy, he may have been like four or five years old, right? We were walking the dog and he runs up with his little sister who might be, might've been three, right? While their dad's cleaning the porch or something. And they walk up to us, run up to us on the sidewalk to like pet the dog, but then the kid looks at looks at me and looks at my wife and he's just like, hey, can I ask you a question? And we're like, yeah, sure. And he's like, why are you black and why are you tan? And like <laughs> he knew to not say like white or whatever like that. But it was so funny. And then their dad was just like, oh, man, like and we're like, it's totally cool. Like they're kids. But it's interesting because, you know, they're forming the categories and forming the language mm. and understanding those relationships already early on. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's uh, uh, some great research, some of my favorite stuff in this domain about like when do parents start talking to their kids about it. Uh, Dr. Sylvia Perry at Northwestern University is doing exactly this work. 
when is it appropriate for parents to start talking with their kids about race? And it's pretty much like as soon as they can talk, like, mm-hmm. and so like uh, around three or four years old, like young children mm. are starting to make like meaningful like uh, differentiations between people of different races, right? By the time they're seven or eight, they're already starting to form complex associations about race and different aspects of like identity, mm-hmm. right? And so by the time your kid's 12, if you haven't taught them how to not be racist, like they're going to be racist. <laughs> like, yeah. And so you need to start having conversations as early as possible because right now there's some debate about like, oh, well, you know, the kids might not understand this by a certain period of time. So we should just wait to talk about right. it until they're adults. And I'm like, they've probably already committed the most serious offenses that they can commit. I mean, look at all these politicians in America who are doing blackface in high school and stuff, right? Or wearing uh, Native American headdresses and things like that. Or Mm. people with Cinco de Mayo parties putting on sombreros and mustaches and getting drunk as if that Mm. is a celebration of Mexican heritage and culture, right? Like these are not, those are not the things that Mm -hmm. you're supposed to be doing and you're doing them when you're kids. I don't think it's ever really too early to engage with it. This is why Ibram Kendi has written his book, you know, Stamp for the Beginning for Kids and has like these little like journals, like the ABCs of activism and stuff like that. Like Mm. there's a lot of great material out there that's getting ready to introduce young kids to this. Mm. And, you know, what I know already just being getting ready to teach this class in you know 48 hours here you know students are ready for this they're craving for it they have Mm. wanted it for so long and they've been trying to process those things about their life until now so we're actually depriving people Mm. of knowledge that they're seeking not just about the world but about themselves yeah and so imagine just running through your whole life with a disintegrated racial identity Right. And Mm. what it takes for you to kind of get back in touch with that. It ruins our relationships with other people when we're not enough of something or we're not culturally like attuned to different things. Right. And it makes us forget ourselves at the same time. So it's like there's a lot of bad things that happen because you wait until someone's an adult to do something that you could have done when they were a child. Yeah, it's so important. And I think that's something we've we've talked about a fair bit in our podcast with other psychologists from when they're in the womb how important it is like all of that you know psychological messaging and all that sort of stuff it starts getting implanted when they are actually in the womb so for people to discount you know how important it is to actually feed them this information so early on is it's kind of sad and that's what that's like you said like that's the one of the main issues of the world you know you've got all these very dysfunctional adults doing the wrong thing and that's just continuously creating the next generation and so yeah Kevin one of the really fantastic points that you highlighted I think we have to be careful especially because this is the right time for people of color to really stand up for this for these things and have Mm -hmm. an opinion but I think one thing that I find myself doing really easily is I end up oppressing as well especially some of the white folks because I sometimes go in with that bias in my head mm. and go, oh, of course they'll be fucking racist. And and sometimes I tend to be the oppressor, which is the same thing that had happened to us in the first place. <laughs> and you end up doing, and the cycle continues. And mm. then there's more apathy between, and it just further broadens the difference, which I think happens so much right now that everyone's in the, on that bandwagon and they're like, yeah, we're going to hate them. They should do this. They should do that. Instead of, you know, going, well, look, let's look at their, where they're coming from, like you said. 
you know, they come from that teaching and nurturing over years and years. Mm-hmm. What was their childhood like? We never even opened that discussion for them. Mm. And I think we can easily end up oppressing them again, which will continue this cycle. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I think that's one of these things where there's these levels of institutionalized racism and institutionalized whiteness, right? That is, when I was speaking earlier about like, erasing history and mythologizing and other aspects of people's history and and cultural development when when those sorts of things happen at that big of a level right it's hard to not internalize that at the individual level where it's just like who i was before and all these things are like not important because like i'm telling you i'm not a white supremacist right now mm-hmm. regardless of like maybe their history of doing those mm-hmm. kinds of things or it's very common that we hear like a lot of like in American media, especially from our politicians, like why should people now pay for like the sins of the past? Basically, like mm. slavery's over. Right. Or, you know, we gave this back or, you know, you got this holiday and like these like little sorts of like got this holiday. Ha- yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, like these like okay. pacifying kinds of things that are meant to just like calm people down but at the at the part where people still hold like if they are holding white supremacist ideals right they're just saying like isn't that enough for you and like that to me (laughs) to me those people having that attitude justifies like the response you're talking about Sahil in terms of like no man like of course they're going to be racist because like everybody is right and that that person is especially going to be racist in a white supremacist way then it's just like i'm going to hold them to account Mm. but again to the other point that you made later on is like look are we really seeing where that person's coming from Mm. can we engage with that like the history Mm. we can because of all the shit that we've faced historically as like our whole peoples but then in our individual histories microaggressions actual physical aggressions assaults that we've experienced in our lives invalidations you know that have occurred to us like those things have happened and it's hard to like look at like some white people who like don't come and have like a seat at the table right Mm. Who just haven't had that experience or haven't had that had to do that investigation and the only time that they feel like that is when they're confronted by a person of color who's like can we talk about some of these issues when they and get then questioned. all the resistance and like i'm not going to engage but there's a common goal here to understand like where's everybody coming from and a lot of people of color especially like you know abolitionist people who are trying to get this movement started they're just like a lot of people are just begging, like white people, please just learn the truth about mm-hmm. yourself. That's all we're asking. This is all we're asking you mm. to do. Because once you start to see that, then this might spur the change. This might, like you said earlier, this might be the thing that gets you to care. Mm. And then that caring is the thing that will inspire behaviors. Yeah. Right. That will get you to know rather than to be careful. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Like these are this is where we want to end up at. Getting people to like know themselves better in a way that allows them to connect with other people. Yeah. Well, what a good note. I want to ask more because you've done all sorts of stuff with, you know, morals and and that's really important. But the problem is we actually have to go. And plus he has a class to teach in 48 hours. He's highlighted that before. <laughs> I can see <laughs> that still. Nerves, nerves are getting to... No, I'm just kidding. And what's the uh, name of the class? Uh, the class is called We're Not Beyond Race, Race and Identity race. in America. That's pretty cool. Yeah, if people, yeah. and is would that be available online for other people? 
Uh, we're going to be recording the class, um, particularly for our students. students. I want to talk with my co-teacher and yeah. some other higher-ups about, like, will this thing be available? Yeah, and it's a discussion-based class, so, like, large, yeah. all the content's going to be, like, hopefully as engaging and interesting as this conversation we had today. Um, but, you know, really bringing those ideas out from the students to have them investigate these things critically. But we have your website. We'll be putting up for some great resources and some great readings that, you know, will will definitely start the conversation well let's hope it does it will it will i i'm i'm positive <laughs> thank you so much for your time kevin it was wonderful talking to you thank you all it was yeah this was a fantastic conversation um i i didn't know what to expect going into tonight but i'm feeling good feeling energized and yeah just happy to have been invited to speak with you both so thank no you. thank you thank you so much and uh good luck for your yeah, first good class. luck. And this is just the beginning. Yes. Thanks so much, you two. <laughs> All right. Thank, thank you. you. Bye-bye, Kevin. <laughs> See ya. Take care. Bye. Bye.